Hello and welcome to Revenge of the Drive-In. This is the podcast where we ordinarily select two movies at random from a list of over 2,000. However, as we are nearing the end of our season this time, our hosts, myself and Jim, have picked our own movies. So, Jim, I'll let you introduce yourself and your film. Yes, yes, thank you. First off, my name is Jim. Most people call me James or Jimmy, but you can call me whatever you want. Just don't call me late for dinner. Secondly, the movie I picked is, uh, I always screw up the name, it's Battles Without Honor and Humanity. Yeah, so originally this wasn't my first pick. After watching whatever Bruce Lee movie we watched last, I was like, I want something vaguely Asian and vaguely Kung Fu-y. And I started going through our list of, of movies that you sent me, and I found some like... This is not a martial arts picture at No, exactly. All. And so, I didn't think it was. No, but... so anyways, I started like looking for like things in the title like Dragon, Kung Fu, Fist, and then... I just stumbled across Battles Without Honor and Humanity, and I was like, oh, that looks like a cool poster, and the trailer looks neat. It might be kind of kung fu Boy, was I wrong, but it was still a pleasure to watch. Had you not heard of the movie beforehand? No, no never. This is a total Okay, because pick. this is somewhat of a classic. It was hugely successful in Japan, obviously. It has who knows how many sequels or you know maybe in name only sequels i'm not really sure because i've only seen i think the first two in the series well jim thank you for sharing i am patrick <laughs> and my pick was gone with the pope which probably needs more of a setup than uh, battles without Honor. yeah how did you how did you first hear about this movie patrick i don't remember probably when i was shopping because you know i visited the the i i I haunt the websites of the, of the you know the classic the boutique Blu-ray dealers you know the, the types of people that <laughs> the boutique Blu-ray um, dealers I make I make this sound like this is like a uh, an unsavory activity which in some cases it is but <laughs> yeah I get them all mixed up there's vinegar syndrome Arrow video kind of rides the line they do some cult stuff but definitely more mainstream stuff synapse films there's one i'm forgetting and then of course grindhouse releasing grindhouse releasing is a company was co-founded by sylvester stallone's son sage stallone who is no longer with us and if you've seen rocky five he is one of the stars of rocky five he's absolutely terrible in that movie but you know let's guys rest in peace of course but yeah so this movie I want to save the backstory, or or what I know of the backstory, for, okay. for when we get to it, because I think there's a lot of interesting things. My takeaway from Gone with the Pope is it's more interesting than entertaining. Yes, but I want to express something to you. So I know we've spoken about Gone with the Pope, and you explained to me what Gone with the Pope was, and I totally forgot that you explained to me. And when I looked it up on Tubi, which both of our movies are on Tubi, mine's mislabeled, mm-hmm. but whatever. When I looked it up on Tubi, it said 1975. And when I looked up Gone with the Pope, it said 2010. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I was like, I get it. It wasn't until maybe about 35 minutes in that I realized that this was an actual movie and not not like a farce movie, like a spoof movie that was made in 2010 to look like it was right, made in right, the 70s. Right. I got like 30. And, and see, that's where your lack of uh, Duke Mitchell knowledge is <laughs> yeah. coming up to yeah. bite you in exactly. the ass. Because I, I will prep this by saying I'll, I'm only covering one movie, but I did in fact watch two movies because I also watched Bela Lugosi meets a Brooklyn Gorilla because that is, uh, of course... A film that Duke Mitchell starred in in his prime, and I felt like I needed to, 
get a sense of who Duke Mitchell was as, as an entertainer, not just as a weirdo independent filmmaker who makes weird 70s mafia movies, because that wasn't all of what, what he was. He was other things. Not only does Duke Mitchell sound like a fake name. A little bit. But it, could, could we call him like the Neil Breen of, of, of his era? There's a resemblance, the two of yes, them. Yes, yeah. Both physically and mentally. Well, yeah, I, I, no, I, I, meant, I meant physically. I think... I don't know. I think he's just an interesting filmmaker. He he did one other movie, I think, which I'm dying to see. It's also on Tubi. But let's get into this all later. Let's start with a film that actually came out when it was made. Well, Patrick, we are going to talk about the winner of the 1974 Kinema Junpo Awards for Best Film and Best Actor and Best Screenplay. That is Battles Without Honor and Humanity from 1973. You can find it on Tubi, but it's under New Battles Without Honor and Humanity, which I believe is the sequel to this. It's one of the sequels. It's it's not even the first sequel because there was I think the first three movies in the series all came out the same year. They are they're always Battles Without Honor hum, Humanity with like a colon, and one of them is uh, Hiroshima Death Match. Another one is something I don't know. And then it had been a full eight months, so they decided to reboot the series with New Battles <laughs> Without Honor and Humanity, and then. The series, I don't think, has ever really... Uh, well, I guess it's a gone away now, but, I mean, they made movies throughout the 70s, 75, 76, 79, and then they got another New Battles Without Honor and Humanity. Mm. That's in 2000. And that, for um, someone who maybe not super into Japanese films, might be vaguely familiar with that because the music from the 2001 is used in the Kill Bill movies because um, yes, yeah, Tarantino loves his Japanese violent stuff you know after watching tarantino films and then also watching this you can see where he's kind of picked little little things out of this movie or or this series if if others are like this in the series you know i don't want to take this away from you if you were going to talk about some of this stuff but i i own this movie on blu-ray so i saw the movie and then i saw it afterwards with a commentary track from a film scholar who i guess specialized in japanese films and he talked a little bit about kind of the background of it and what it was inspired by you might think it's inspired by The Godfather because it comes out about six months or so after The Godfather, mm-hmm. but apparently it was more inspired by the French crime films of like the 50s and 60s. All of that having been said, I thought this movie felt a bit like a Scorsese movie done with tar- a little bit of Tarantino style because yeah, Tarantino yeah. likes the weird Japanese stuff. And there are a lot of things that f- reminded me a bit of like Goodfellas or something like that. You know, this is 17 years before Goodfellas. He might have been inspired by this in some way. I'm not really sure. I feel like this movie is kind of modern. There were just like a lot of really interesting shots in this and Dutch angles of like guys running down hallways, you know. It just seemed like something somebody would make today and it was as gripping for me anyways. One thing that really stood out to me was some real awkward camera angles and I think it was just because there were a lot of there was a lot of shooting in rooms that were kind of small yes, and yeah. they had like nine people in the room so like everything was just super cramped. I I kind of in, enjoyed that. Well, I don't know if you know anything about the director. It's directed by Kenji Fukasaku. I didn't know this, but he's like one of the most successful Japanese film directors. You might know him for Battle Royale. Oh. He's had like hits in like a bunch of different decades. He actually very, very commercially successful director in Japan. Didn't get a lot of Western like critical evaluations until probably a little bit later. He was recognized in some way because I think he did the 
Japanese segments for the film Tora Tora Tora. Okay, yeah. And then he also made a movie called The Green Slime, which is high up on the list of movies I want to see. It's just like some sci-fi monster movie made by a Japanese dude, but with like all American actors for some reason. <laughs> and, um, I think uh, Sonny Chiba's in that, actually. Oh. So uh, Su- Chiba's in a handful of films by this guy, but not any of the ones that I've seen. But yeah, so this director was, was huge, and I think this is kind of what launched him into that upper echelon of Japanese filmmakers, it sounds like. Okay, yeah. Oh, do you know you know the star, the lead actor in this yeah. movie? Bunta? Yeah, Sugawara. Up until this point, he was like a, maybe not struggling actor, but certainly like a, not a noteworthy one, just appears minor roles in a bunch of things. I think it said something like, I think I heard he was in like 130 films before this. So just give you a sense of how many movies Japan is pumping out in these uh, post-war mm-hmm. years, I guess. But but this movie is what made him a star. And then I guess the rest of his career, he went on to be like one of the biggest stars in Japanese cinema. So he's not an actor that I was familiar with. But Japanese people watching this would be like, oh, it's that guy. It would be like seeing Al Pacino or something like that. That's kind of what it sounds like. Yeah. Well, it, it's actually funny because I was familiar with two of the actors in this movie, Bunta Sugawara and Kuni Tanaka, who plays okay. the, uh, oh, Fred, what's his name? I forget, but he's near the end. He's always a chew. Maki Makihara. Yeah. Yeah. Makihara. Yeah. These two actors, I saw their faces I like, and I was watching, I was, I was watching the, the main character and I was like. His face looks so familiar. Then as soon as I saw this other actor, I was like, oh, I know exactly where they're from. They're from one of my favorite animes, One Piece. Ichiro Oda, the creator of One Piece, drew inspiration, physical inspiration, I guess, for two of his characters, Admiral Kainu and Admiral Kizaru from Bunta, Sugawara, and uh, and the other fellow whose name I already forget. So, like, the faces of a character is, like, modeled after these Yes, guys. Okay, yeah. I was going to ask you about that, actually, because when I was watching this movie, I just, like, Googled Bunta Sugawara, and the first thing that came up was, like, him for one piece. Admiral like, Kainu. What? There's no way he's he does, like, a voice for that, is there? Like, no, been no. Like, 75 or something. I watched, like, this quick little clip thing on YouTube about, like, how Oda, the creator of One Piece, based the design of Akainu on um, Sugawara and a lot of his clothes on him as well. And when he died, okay. I think in 2014, Oda had written something along the lines of, never again will there be another man with such fabulous cheekbones and facial structure. He's a cool-looking dude. He I is, don't know uh, if he's, like, the... the you know the the picture of cool but yeah yeah so that's weird but yeah and then and then tanaka is uh admiral kizaru which is kind of neat and if you if you know the character from one piece and you see this guy on screen you're like oh that's the exact same dude so so all this a pleasant surprise to you oh yeah i know it was seeing as how you didn't know any of this going in I just think this is funny that you kind of chose this movie at random, and this is, like, hailed by a lot of people as a masterpiece. Like, this is a super influential (laughs) film, and you had no fucking clue. That's great. Well, the movie itself begins with this really cool intro song. This song plays over several photos of the atomic bomb being dropped on Hiroshima, Mm -hmm. and just destruction, and poor people in lines and starving people and then just chaos of i love the way this movie opens well first of all i love the setting Mm -hmm. the post surrender of japan hiroshima the post bomb and it's just such a like really interesting part of history that i think as an american i we don't tend to think about we maybe we like know japan had this like post-war boom and everything we don't necessarily think of what 
happened in the actual cities that were utterly destroyed. I don't know how accurate this is historically. I'm sure certain aspects of this movie are inspired by true events, but the um, but I couldn't tell you what is or isn't. But just the all the gang stuff going on, all the yeah, the, well, um, the American GIs trying to rape a woman like right at the very beginning. It's like this is just a a weird place to be, a weird place to live in. Yeah, and and kind of going off that point, I think it's worth noting that, and I'm. Almost 100% positive I'm right in saying this, so if I'm not, please forgive me, international listeners. But from what I understand, the Japanese aren't really taught about why the atomic bombs were dropped on Japan. They were I just think taught that's that... somewhat true. Really, in, in I think that's actually incredibly relatable to, I think America does the same thing. Oh with, yeah, absolutely. Um, certain things with the Native Americans and stuff and in Vietnam like we don't tend to talk about the the more shady parts of our military history of course and um so yeah I I think I think you're right about that with Japan in World War II yeah and and then I was I was going to lead into the fact that you know as you said pretty much right at the very beginning we are introduced to this group of GIs trying to rape this Japanese woman and how true is that I'm sure it happened or is it just like uh right after the bombs were dropped the Americans were you know not <laughs> they didn't only rape and destroy our cities but now they're raping our women sort of thing you know I, also if if I may this came up in that commentary track Kinji Fukasaku the director I don't know if he was in Hiroshima but he was as a kid in a school that literally blew up while he was in it and so like he was whether it was Oh, yeah. The atomic bomb or not, I'm not sure. But he was, like, exposed to this stuff. And I think eventually later in his career he made films that were maybe a bit more personal about kind of the horrors that he saw. This really isn't about that so much. You can say that informs the story, but the more is just the story is really just the chaos of the the power vacuum, so to speak. Yes, of, of... yeah. Well, and actually, you know, and speaking about all the chaos here, this first like five minutes sums up the chaos of immediate post-war Japan so well because in the first five minutes we're introduced to like 50 different characters and the names pop up on screen kind of like a documentary format there's a few instances where this feels like it's like a docudrama I wouldn't say overall Mm -hmm. but it has these bits of okay this is so-and-so future underboss of the whatever family this is so-and-so Another thing I'd like to say, first of all, Jim, I don't envy you having to talk about this movie because, <laughs> one, I don't know how to say most of the names. Two, I don't, I don't want to say the movie is is not easy to follow when you're watching it. Mm-hmm. It's there's a lot going on, but I think it's relatively straightforward. I think it's easy enough to follow, but I, it's hard to talk about because I have to like do all this thinking of okay, which character was this? It is. I had to go back and rewatch parts to make sure I was right when I was writing some notes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so but... I do not envy that task. I mean, I have a difficult movie to talk about too, but for other reasons. <laughs> yeah, you do. But in this movie, in this opening five-minute scene, when we're introduced to a million characters, one of them is our main character, played by, uh, you know, Sugawara, and he's Shozo Hirono, and he is a Japanese vet. And him and a group of his friends are like, I I think they're all Japanese war veterans. They're all Japanese, for sure. They're the guys who attack the group of American GIs to to help this Japanese woman escape. Then things start happening, and then one of Hirono's friends comes in with a wound on his head, and he goes, oh my god, what happened? He's like, this crazy drunk Yakuza who's swinging around a sword is in a bar over there, and he attacked me. So Hirono goes over and this guy's fucking three sheets to the wind and he he pulls out his sword and Hirono just shoots him. (laughs) 
like two or three times. And then everybody runs. There's also two people who get their arms cut off. <laughs> and Amazing stuff. Blood <laughs> sprays. Uh, yeah. It's a pretty bloody movie. This is, I mean, no weapon, in my opinion, is more violent than the katana. The Japanese sword is like it's a something about weapon. the way it can cut through things. It's like, uh, there's just nothing like it. It's, it's insane. And and you see a lot of that. Overall, there's more guns than swords in this movie, but you see the effect of the sword pretty early on. Yes, yeah. Well, Hirono is then sent to prison, and he becomes sworn blood brothers with, uh, Hi- uh what's his name? <laughs> Hiroshi Wakasugi, that's it. And they do this disgusting thing where they cut each other's arms and then... S- suck each other's blood yeah well specifically they say because they don't have because they're in prison they don't have sake to mark the occasion so it's like yeah i guess i'll just drink your blood (laughs) yeah great i I wouldn't have have jumped to that conclusion who am i megan fox and machine gun kelly or um army hammer yeah (laughs) and this this wakasugi he's a member of the the doi family it's probably not doi it's probably like doi i don't know but we're gonna call them doi we're gonna call them doi from now on also the yakuza film this was a genre in japan that had been going strong for some time i'm not sure how long but apparently this movie was a big departure from that genre because Mm. the movies prior to this were like all about chivalry and in like the 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 yakuza code which was sort of like a an extension a modernization of like the samurai code Mm -hmm. and then this movie here just every single character is selling people out they're just horrible assholes and like this is and and i think this is kind of what the yakuza film came to be yes so this is like a movie that kind of reinvents that genre oh okay gotcha yeah that's interesting well what else is interesting is that after our two characters drink their drink each other's blood i guess wakasugi comes up with a plan to get himself out of prison he's like look Look around. I want to slice my stomach open, and the wound is going to be so bad that they're going to have to release me to a hospital. And I promise, if I don't die, I'll get someone to post bail for you. They both agree, and Wakasugi slices himself open. And luckily, he he survives, and we next see Hirono on his way out of prison, being picked up by all of his old Mm ex-military friends, who are now part of... I, I guess they're not really part of a Yakuza family yet? They're not, like, fully integrated this and i don't have the eastern context maybe of what this is but in my experience of some of the mafia movies and and the sopranos and stuff like that these are gang members that aren't made men maybe Mm -hmm. is is how i would put this okay but like very quickly after he after he's released from prison we see that uh, hirono and all of his friends kind of take a pledge to yoshio yamamori and they become part of the yamamori family three years later in 1949, that's where we cut to. Hirono picks a fight with a guy in a gambling hall. But to be fair, the guy was a dick and he kind of deserved it. But it turns out the guy was Toru Ueda. He's related to this big, big boss of a powerful family named the Okubo family. When Yamamori learns that Ueda was attacked by his boys, he's like, what the fuck? You gotta fucking come up with a plan to fix this, Hirono. And Hirono's like, uh, I guess I should apologize, but also I... <sighs> I'll just chop off part of my pinky as an apology, which is apparently like an old Yakuza tradition. I also really like this scene because, you know, Yamamori and Hirono go to uh, Okubo. They give him his finger and he just kind of laughs. He's like, this is ridiculous. You didn't need to go this far. Here, I'm going to give you some money. Lay this finger to rest. You know, give it a nice ceremony. (laughs) (laughs) And then he goes, hey, while you're at it, though, can you take my son, Ueda? 
because he was a fucking dick. It was his fault in the gambling hall. I want you to turn him into a man. But I also yeah. want to ask a favor of you. It's it's sort of like a prisoner exchange. Or what was it in the Star Trek The Next Generation when uh, Riker goes to serve aboard oh, yeah. a Klingon <laughs> ship for like a day? Yeah. And then um, the Enterprise D gets a member of some race that doesn't speak up when they notice things are wrong or yeah. something like that, which almost yeah. leads them to a disaster. Yeah, well, that's yeah. kind of what this, what's going on here. What are the names of that stupid race? Those like fish. There's a Benzite. People? I think he's a oh, Benzite. That's it. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> the Benzite notices that that the engine is like suffering critically, but he's like, "Oh, I, you know, I didn't." <laughs> on my and my culture we don't tell people about those things in my it's culture like, okay. we let ships explode i don't believe we've seen benzite since then that that, <laughs> that race may very well not have made it i don't know picard is like I'm never having another one of those fucking idiots on my ship <laughs> okubo he he says hey can, can you do can you guys do me a favor as well as taking my nephew or whatever the fuck he is he's like hey i need you to you know like kidnap or or kill a politician so that he can't vote in this upcoming election there's an election yeah there was a big political strife thing which i never fully understood in the movie and, and this feels like it's probably inspired by something that actually happened but i can't yeah and i mean and to be honest it seems pretty real like like one politician is related to or part of a yakuza gang and he wants like 50 million yen and he wants to become i don't know like an mp or whatever and and take this 50 million yen and use it for his personal gain but other families want to use the 50 million yen and put it to building hiroshima like rebuilding it so okubo says yeah, I need you to take this politician, get him out of the way until the vote's over so that the guy who's going to take the money for himself loses. Yamamori, he's kind of a bitch. And you see that he's like a like <laughs> a bit of a bitch of a Yakuza boss. And he's like, oh, okay, yeah, sure thing, I will, I will. And then when he gets back to their like Yakuza base, he's like, oh, what the hell was I supposed to do? I can't say no to him. He's like a big boss, you know, and he's, and he's given me a son for a while. I ha- we have to do it. So this is where we're introduced to another main character, Sakai. And this guy and a guy named Kanbara are sent out to kidnap this politician and just keep him out of the way until the vote's over. When it's over, he's released, and Sakai decides to go into hiding in Hiroshima with the Kaito family, who's like a big family there. Yeah, and this is another thing, too, where we should say this entire movie takes place around Hiroshima, but there's uh, different... I don't know if Hiroshima is a prefecture and there's different cities within it or, or just... Yeah, that's what I, th- I, it, it, I think. I it think it is a prefecture, right? It's not, clear to, it's not clear to me what all this is, but... Well, because sure I think most of it Japan, happens... This is normal. Yeah, most of it happens in Kure, which is like southeast of Hiroshima. I looked it up on yeah. a map. I, I, whether whether this is true or not, I, I choose to view these as like the New York City boroughs. Yeah, yeah. Hooray, maybe that's Brooklyn. <laughs> when the guy goes out in hiding, maybe he goes to the Bronx. I don't know. Well, the other guy that, that helped kidnap the politician, Kanbara, he's out getting plastered, and he's just, like, running his mouth off to a bunch of women at the table. He's like, uh, we're the ones who kidnapped the, the politician of the Yamamori family, and all those politicians are now kowtowing to us. The Doi family overhears this. They just fucking kick the shit out of him. Then they all kind of head to the... Yamamori family's place. The head of the Doi family comes in, and Wakasugi's part of that that family. And mm-hmm. Doi's about to kill Yamamori or Hirono because he kind of steps in the way. But Wakasugi jumps in between because I can't let you kill his boss or him. We're sworn blood brothers. You can't fucking touch mm-hmm. 
and he pulls out a gun and points it at his boss, which kind of uh, effectively terminates their working relationship. Doi goes, well, you'll, you you won't, you haven't heard the last of me, you son of a bitch. And so now Wakasugi's part of the Yamamori family, and Kanbara, they kind of chase him away, and he joins the Doi family. So sometime later, the Yamamori family hears that Doi is seeking to create an alliance between himself and the Kaito family in Hiroshima, and they have a plan to take him out. But it's all like Yamamori's plan, and he's like, "Well, I can't do it because I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a bitch ass, and nobody else can do it because you know they can't do it. What are we gonna do?" Hirono kind of steps up and he says, "Well, I I guess I can do it if you want me to." And Yamamori's so thankful. He gives him like all the money that they have. He's like, "Go out and have fun tonight. Get drunk. Get hookers. Whatever." And you know, you're probably gonna go to prison for this because there's no way you're never gonna be caught. So doesn't matter how long you're gonna be there for. I'm gonna have money waiting for you when you come out, and I'm gonna give you all of my possessions and my business, and you'll be the head of the family. And he's just like very like I don't know how to describe it. He's 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 playing into this grateful thing too much. He like he just doesn't seem like yeah. an actual yakuza. It's, boss. It seems fake. Not only does it seem fake, but he's also completely different than all the other bosses that we've met in the movie. Like, he just mm-hmm. seems like a whiny little man. Yes, yes. But also, apparently the director hated this performance. Oh. And I think he the script maybe didn't call for this type of whiny-ass performance, but it's what they got. I don't know. The guy, yeah, the director did not want this actor, and I think there was something about the... <laughs> I don't I don't know how he ended up in the part, but it didn't sound like the director liked him at all. So so I, I don't want to say it's the weakest performance in the movie because I think it works in its own way to inform this character, but mm-hmm. it's 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 a character I didn't really enjoy. Yeah, yeah, me neither. There's actually a scene I really enjoyed. I I, I don't have it in my notes, so I was gonna skip over it, but I kinda wanna touch on it. So it's after this scene and Hirono goes to a whorehouse. Kind of like right after that scene, it cuts to him and there's this awesome shot of him laying on top of this woman with this giant like koi fish tattoo on his back. Yeah. And he starts making love to this woman and she kind of squeals and she goes, oh, Don't be so hard, be gentle, go slower and he goes, I don't have the time. <laughs> <laughs> And then he heads up to Hiroshima, and he he waits for Doi to come out of the Kaito family house, and he just starts gunning him down. But it's like it's kind of like a really sloppy job. Like he shoots him two or three times, and then all of his men try to jump Hirono, and he shoots some of them or runs away from them. And Doi's running down the street, and he catches up, and like he shoots him again, then trips over him and shoots him some more times. And then Hirono goes to a hideout, like almost immediately. He's like, I got to get the hell out of here. I'm going to go to a Yamamori family hideout that the boss's wife set up for me. Who also seems fake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, she's always like bound to everybody being very respectful. But as soon as all the men are out of the room, she's like, honey, why did you do that? You you know, you got to stick up Mm -hmm. for yourself. You know, fucking be a man. (laughs) But back to Hirono, he's hanging out in this safe house and he, he gets a knock on the door. And it's Kanbara. He knocks on the door and says, Hey, Hirono, I'm here to smuggle you out of the city and into another hideout. And he goes, Oh, who sent you? He goes, The boss, Yamamori. How would I know where you are, you know? And he's like, Yeah, uh, okay. And he's a little skeptical, but he decides to hop in this truck with him. It turns out to be a trap, though. He kind of ditches Hirono in a tunnel where the Doi family begins to chase him. But he was like, There's only one thing I can do. He hops into the truck, starts running away. Like, There's only one thing I can do, man. I gotta turn myself into the police for the murder of Doi mm-hmm. so I can escape the family. And he does. 
Wakasugi visits Hirono in prison. And this is where we, as the viewer, see that the characters are starting to distrust Yamamori. And they're kind of like, I don't know what's going on with this guy. Something doesn't seem right. How would, you know... Kanbara know where you are, what's going on. This whole thing just seems fishy. And Wakasugi and him are kind of making plans for how they're going to live when Hirono does get out of prison. Right after this, Wakasugi was right in his in his suspicions of Yamamori because where he's hiding out with his girlfriend, the location of her house is, is given to the police and he tries to hide and his girlfriend tries to hide her, but the police do find him and wind up like shooting him two or three times and they kill him. I love this scene. This is probably my favorite scene in the movie. I thought it was just really neat how the it's really quiet. They just hear, I think it's, they hear like dogs barking. Yeah, and yeah. you know, it's like the police and then this, they try and hide him quick. And then we, when the police actually get in, there's a little bit, there's some shooting. He takes out a few police officers. Oh, I, I do. Yeah. Then, well, I'm going to stop you there for a second because I totally forgot about that. His girlfriend hides him with the children in bed and he's just like wrapped up. He's meant to look like one of the kids. Yeah, and then as this cop like is like looking at the sleeping kids, the girlfriend is like, "Look, don't wake the kids. You got to be quiet." He's he's like, "Okay, okay." He goes to walk away, then turns around and he just grabs the covers and pulls them back. And there's fucking Wakasugi with a pistol ready, and he just plugs them a couple times. It was mm-hmm. so cool. There's also something that that I noticed particularly in this scene, and again, this goes back to what I said earlier about the kind of the, for lack of a better term, the claustrophobic camera angles, just because there's not that much room mm-hmm. in this apartment, and there's what. 10 cops or something like there's a lot of people here but they do this thing and that i've seen in some like gun fu type movies like i'll say it's present in john wick the gun used as like a close range weapon yes feels so brutal it feels like he's stabbing someone with a bullet i know it's kind of like like john wick will do that thing where he'll like take down a guy he'll like tackle him he'll shoot another guy behind a wall and then he when he brings the gun back to the guy that he has tackled what he does with the gun, yes, he shoots him, but he like brings the gun towards him and almost like a almost like a stabbing motion, and then Wakasugi does that here, and I I don't know, it's just so brutal. Yeah, I I also like specifically with this scene that the gun is the focus of the of the shot. You know, when when the covers get pulled off of Wakasugi, you see his face, but he's kind of like off to the right hand side of the frame, and then the gun, as the covers are being pulled off, the gun just appears right in the middle. You know, <laughs> and then the police officers on the left, and it's just—I don't know—it was just like a perfect, it was a perfect uh, uh, surprise. You know, it was—it was like opening a Christmas, a present on Christmas morning to see that. It was just such a cool shot. So it's after this. So Wakasugi's killed in 1949. Like, like I, I think literally the day after he goes to see Hirono in prison because him and his girlfriend are gonna escape. They're gonna go somewhere and hide out for a couple of years, and he gets killed that night. And so then we kind of jump ahead by a couple of years. And in 1950, the Korean War starts. And the first couple of years of the 50s, the Yamamori family is really thriving because they're getting big bucks from like a government contract that was related to shipping goods for the Korean War. And they just have so many people joining their family. But this is also when like divisions start appearing. So you have... Uh, what's his name? Sakai and Ueda yeah. on one side. And then you have... Shinkai and Yano on the other side. Is this the scene where they, where they like a bunch of people die? No, this is the scene where they bust up the drug ring stuff going on. Oh yeah, so, like Sakai, yeah, he looks fucking dope as shit, dude. He's got these cool glasses on. He's got like this cool coat on with the collar popped. Patrick, if you actually look up admirals in One Piece, that's what they're all drawn like. <laughs> okay. 
And uh, I'm not gonna do that, but okay. And anyways, he uh, he confronts this subordinate of Shinkai's named Arita, and he's dealing this fucking drug. I don't, I don't remember what it's called. But Sakai says he's acting against Yamamori's orders and that dealing drugs is actually dangerous for the family because it's easier for the police to prove that they're doing illegal things and also it's easier to track back mm-hmm. to the family. So Sakai confiscates all the drugs and hands them over to Yamamori. And Sakai also points out that the Yamamori family's too big now. He's like saying this to to old man Yamamori himself. He's like, look, we're too big now. You're skimming too much of the money. Yeah, that's why they went into the drug dealing is that Yamamori is taking way too much of the profits. They are like forced to do these other things. Exactly, yeah. So Sakai and and Ueda are like, look, you got to stop taking so much money. And with all the big Yakuza families, the main guys in the family find a way to make their own living on the side. And that's what we need to do. And Yamamura's like, uh, I don't know. We should have a vote. Who wants to do that? Or who wants to keep making money? <laughs> and the other two guys, Shinkai and Yano, they, they're on Yamamori's side. And they want everything to stay the exact same. They just really start kind of getting into a fight. And Sakai's kind of, this is kind of the part where like Sakai's like, you're a useless Yakuza boss. You suck. <laughs> and you're just doing all of this wrong. Sakai is also tipped off by Arita that Yamamori's selling the confiscated drugs in Hiroshima for personal profit. So Sakai confronts Yamamori about it, and he tries to explain it away by saying something like, Oh, well, we need to get rid of the drugs because we have them. And I'm selling them in Hiroshima because it's, you know, it's further away and it's harder for the police to trace it back to us. But like Sakai isn't buying any of the bullshit that he's laying down. He essentially says like, look, I've lost all faith in you. So has Ueda, and we plan on taking over the family with the help of the surviving members of the Doi family who we tried to eradicate earlier in the movie. So the factions are, it's it's Yamamori, Yano, Shinkai, and the Doi, and Sakai, and Ueda. So <laughs> everything's launched into like this, this Yamamori family civil war. And the first mm-hmm. death we get is ueda he gets killed by Ari and this this felt very goodfellas to me like it during did, the yeah. layla piano solo where we just go from like one person dying to the next yeah i really like that but it it, it happened over like three or four years oh yeah because it because when each person dies it has the it, we get that musical sting of yeah. the theme that and then it says the person's name and it says dies and it says the date yeah and i think the first one was so like the first one was like 1951 or two or something and the last one's in like 1954 but yeah so wade is killed in a barbershop which is a pretty cool scene and then we get a montage of people just being shot and classic mafia thing right it, the barbershop murder is such like a mafia movie staple i feel like and also like in the days when people would go to a barber specifically for a shave Ugh, yeah. like you're just asking to get like <laughs> you know how easy it is to just slit someone's throat with that thing so you know well that's why i was surprised uh, that's that not they... what they do here though they shoot them yeah yeah at like point blank range and blood spatters yes. all over the mirror and the yes wall. this movie has incredible squibs they also I like how you see the smoke coming from the bodies that have been shot. Yes, too. yeah, I love really it. Good job of that. One of my favorite, <laughs> one of my favorite bits in this montage is, I, I guess it's at the end when. Is this the train station? Oh no, actually, I like that one. I guess it's not at the end. It's uh, it's when Arita gets captured by the police because <laughs> he pulls up to like a police checkpoint and the guy goes, "Can I see your license and registration?" And he goes, "Sure," and then just shoots the cop in the gut <laughs> and starts driving away and flips his car. But yeah, then Shinkai is killed on like a train platform, which is pretty neat by these two dudes who just jump him and stab him. 
So while all this is going on, and again, this ends in like 1954 or something, back in prison, Hirono's released on parole, and he quickly learns about all the issues and deaths and infighting, but he's confused about what's going on, much like the viewer. Yamamori also, like, because they're, they're going to pay him, like, a, a monthly allowance, but they also insist that, hey, we've seen some real hard times lately, like, we don't have a lot of money. And then he finds out from someone else that that's literally not true. Well, uh, They've never been more successful it, 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 than they are. Exactly. Right now. Like, I love that scene so much because the actor Yamamori is playing that like, oh, what was me? What was us? What was the family? And he's like, here's the here's the allowance. You can cover lunch. And he turns to this and then, you know, Hirono turns to the guy behind him and he goes, are they that hard up? He goes, no, they're throwing lavish parties like they just had one the other night, you know? This is when I guess Hirono becomes more suspicious. I think, I, I guess he goes to Wakasugi's place right to pay his respects mm-hmm. but sakai shows up and it turns out he's with wakasugi's girlfriend and they've got a kid together wakasugi's girlfriend or wife or whatever like the, he comes in he introduces himself he had never met her i guess before but she also goes and she's pre- pretty clearly moved on they have that it, it's the great visual storytelling where she has to like open up a drawer which yeah, is yeah, where yeah. the shrine is yeah and, and set of, his photo uh, up and dead stuff. wakasugi yeah yeah so that that was neat yeah, and there was also a bit, what what did he say when he came and he saw the baby? He said, oh, is this Wakasugi's? And she said, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, and then and then later on when he's talking to, is this Sakai, is this Sakai yeah, that comes in? Yeah. Sakai just says, yeah, it's my kid. But also, too, worth mentioning is that Yamamori has asked, has asked Hirono on his first day out of prison, hey, I, I have a favor, can you kill Sakai? Hirono's like, well, I just got out of prison and I'm on parole and I don't really want to go back. And I'm not sure what's going on, so I'm going to go talk to him first. And then he just happens to bump into him at Wakasugi's mm-hmm. place. But there's a great bit where Sakai thinks he's going to kill him. And he reaches into his pocket to pull out a, a pack of cigarettes, but he thinks it's a gun. And he starts flipping out. Sakai starts telling Hirono, he's like, look, whatever Yamamori's told you, it's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. All of it. He goes, I want out. I'm going to be starting a business soon. You can join. I've already got a bunch of other people who want to join my business. But Yamamori's a lying piece of shit. And he's been killing everybody. And Hirono's like, well, I got to be honest. You know, he asked me to kill you. I think maybe you should just, you know, make up with Yamamori. And maybe we can go back to, to normal here. Well, Sakai confronts Yamamori about the hit on him. And he, it, at first, I thought he killed him. Because it was so great. He comes flying in to Yamamori's room with like a samurai sword. It turns out he just forced him to retire as the head of the family. And mm-hmm. Sakai takes his place as the head of the family and he creates this new company. And then Sakai has Yano killed because he's attempting to end negotiations between the Kaito family and Sakai. Hirono hears this from Yamamori and Makihara, who is the Admiral Kizaru guy. And he goes, and Hirono's like, look. I don't give a shit. I want out of the Yakuza. I don't want to be working for you anymore. I don't want to work for anybody. I just want out of all the gang shit. But I'm gonna kill Sakai for killing one of our old friends because mm-hmm. you know. And then and then there's a great realization too here where yeah when when they when they tell him where he is then he's like wait a second then you you're the one who betrayed Wakasugi exactly you're the one who yeah. gave the police where he was it's like oh, okay so that's neat yeah and so so at that point he's totally like he's like I'm, I'm done with Yamamori he's a piece of shit asshole who's lied to me for the last you know 15 years or whatever and he goes to this hotel where Sakai is supposed to be hanging out and he gets brought into the room by like seven or eight armed men and I think he looks so cool here Hirono he's just like he's kind of ready to die he's like he's like look kill me if you want I don't give a shit I'm here to kill you but Sakai can't bring himself 
to kill him. So they get into a car and they're just kind of talking about what the two of them are going to do. And so Kai's like, look, you can join me. You can join my company. We can be friends again. We can maybe even start our own family. Can gay couples adopt in Japan uh, in 1973? <laughs> no, I don't think they can adopt now. I don't, I think it's, I don't even think gay marriage is legal in Japan right now. Yeah, I have no idea. I don't know. Hirono tells Sakai, goes, look, we're never going to be friends again, and I will kill you. So if you don't kill me today, that's fine. I'll leave, but I will kill you at some point in the future. And Sakai is kind of saddened by this. He pulls his gun out of his pocket and just gives it to Hirono. He's like, okay, I can't kill you today. I, I really don't want to. And he gets out of the car and mm-hmm. walks away, but he's jumped by Makihara's men and killed, shot down with a doll in his hand for his kid. So the very last scene of the movie, they're holding this funeral for Sakai, and you have Makihara and Yamamori there and all these other Yakuza bosses. Everybody's paying their respects and stuff. Everybody's wearing nice mm-hmm. suits and traditional Japanese dress. And then fucking Hirono strolls up in his cool coat and like a Hawaiian shirt or whatever the hell he's wearing. Well, he's, he's wearing, like, white. He's, like, the only one, except for there's some people oh, yeah, in, like, right. the, <laughs> the Shinto robes or something, but he's the only one not in black, and it's just such a neat visual. Yeah, and, and he pushes his difference. way through the crowd, which is also just so yeah. neat to watch. But he gets right up to the shrine, and he says, do you like this? Do you like what they're doing for you? Do you like this show that they're putting on for you now that you're dead? No, of course you don't. He just pulls out the pistol that Sakai gave him and starts shooting all the names. <laughs> For like all the offerings and stuff like that. And everybody's freaking out. And Yamamori says something to him. I forget what it is. But he's like, you, you stop. Do you know what you're doing? And he stops shooting. And he just turns to Yamamori. And he says, careful. I've still got a couple shots left. And then he just puts his gun down, like back in his pocket. And just walks away. And that's the I don't think he does. I think he walks away with the gun out still. Oh, okay. Yeah. But yeah. But that's. Point taken. Nonetheless. But that's it. That's the end of the movie. It, it's a pretty intense and interesting movie. So Patrick. I assume this is a second or third or possibly fourth watch for you, but what did you think about it this time? Well, second and third, and I will say, I mean, it's good. It's it's very good. It's a stylish gangster movie, a Japanese gangster movie. It, it felt like a mix. A kind of I mentioned the Scorsese with Tarantino style. Mm-hmm. It, it also felt neo noirish in, in a few ways, and I think that could be the influence of the French crime films. I don't really know. But I did find it really entertaining. I thought the main character was awesome. It's a good performance from, uh, what, was, what was the guy's name? The One Piece guy? Oh, uh, Sugawara. Yeah, Bunta Sugawara. I thought that's a good performance by that guy. There's a lot of characters. There's a lot of shifting motivations, shifting allegiances. But it all makes sense in the moment, and it's as it plays out, it's just really interesting to see. It's just such a it's it's such an interesting depiction of a yakuza lifestyle where you trust this guy now, but tomorrow he may be your greatest enemy. And I really like that aspect of the film, and I think it pays off in a big way towards the end, obviously. It's entertaining. The violence is awesome. They get the arm severings and the blood spraying everywhere. Some of the best squibs I've seen from the 70s. And and they're so bloody. Yeah. And they just explode literally out of people oh, yeah. and cover walls. And, well, and also, also, I could be wrong, but I don't think anyone gets shot once in this movie. They all get shot like four, five, six times. There's just like, there's already, there's blood and then there's more blood. There's more blood on top of that. It's just amazing. Yeah, I liked, I liked the movie quite a bit. Jim, what about you? It sounds like you did as well. 
Yeah, I uh, I really like this story and how you kind of meet all these characters at the beginning. They're all on the same side. They all have a common goal, and that's just to to live happily and relatively peacefully and try to make some money. And then throughout this movie, you just have all these friends turning on each other, killing each other. They're just interesting characters. And again, Sugawara, I think, is such a cool actor, and he looks cool, too. I really liked his acting. And I really liked all the stuff with Wakasugi. I don't even know, like... uh, this this really was like watching an American gangster movie just set in Japan. Because you had the cars. Like, there was even a line like Yamamori, because they had so much money, they started driving around like... Oh, the foreign cars, <laughs> which I thought was funny. That, that, might mean, that might mean he's driving a Ford. But yeah, like, they're driving around these big old, like, American cars in the 50s. <laughs> I didn't like it. It was really just interesting. It was also interesting to kind of see, like, the gangster movie from the perspective of, of a Japanese filmmaker. Because this is because sure. this is like the same era as The Godfather, right? You look at that, and that's a masterpiece. It's lovely, but also this is so it's cool. overrated. I, you know, what bothers me about The Godfather? What? No one ever turns a fucking light on in that entire yeah, movie. Know, it's I always know. so dark. It's like, bro, you're you're uh, you're uh, the head of a mafia family. You're wealthy. You cheaping on the electrical bill. Turn a light on, Vito. <laughs> Yeah. But no, The Godfather, it's obviously a masterpiece. I just I just like joking about that. It's like uh it's such it's such deliberately moody lighting, but it's just like <laughs> you know, you can just turn a light on, buddy. Like it, like if it were like a real if if you were to go over to Vito's house, you'd be like, uh, can we yeah, can we get a I can't lamp even on? see you. Yeah. 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 yeah, but I don't know, and, and then all the stuff with like, you know, the the Yakuza code and honor and stuff like that that came into the story, I just thought it was interesting, but I got because I guess I'm a bit of a weeb at heart. So maybe that's why I really liked this movie. I don't know what that means. I, I guess I'm a Japanophile at heart. Oh. I don't know. There's just something about it. I can't really put my finger on it, but I just really liked this gangster story. I liked the setting, the characters, and how bloody it was. But also, yeah. I was uh, reading something else here uh, under production. I'll read this out to you. Battles Without Honor and Humanity adapts a series of articles by journalist Koichi Iboshi that ran in Weekly Sankei, or Sankai. These were actually rewrites of a manuscript originally written by a a real-life Yakuza guy who was incarcerated in Abashiri Prison. And Abashiri Prison, that's only the second time I've heard the name of that prison, because the first time I heard it is in one of my new favorite animes called Golden Kamui. I guess the main story takes place around Abashiri prison because you have like this guy who tattoos all these prisoners with a map on how to get how to find like this lost stolen gold and then all these prisoners escape out of Abashiri prison yeah battles without honor and humanity I'm surprised uh, how much I like this uh, it's just a really cool gangster flick yeah it's a it's a very good movie and it, well and actually before I move on even the filmmaking too like we were saying like there's lots of really cool shots and like I don't know I, I, again like going back to like these Dutch angles or just shots where like they seem super modern where like somebody has like a baseball bat leaning against a wall and you don't see the characters talking and then somebody walks over and picks up the baseball bat and the camera pans up to the character holding it, you know? Like just really interesting blocking. Yeah, I don't know. It's just it's just really neat. All right. Well, there you have it. Battles Without Honor and Humanity. We both recommend it. Could we, I mean, sh- should we even use this because it is such a good critically acclaimed movie and it's not really a drive-in movie, I guess? That's debatable. I mean, I think there's certain crime gangster films that could indeed be considered drive-ins. So this this is probably a more interesting question than you might even realize. But you know, because The Godfather, 
the Godfather isn't on our list. That's not something we would touch. But first of all, the the Battles Without Honor and Humanity series, there's so many films, it's quite possible that some of them are better suited to what we're talking about than others. And, and you, you know, because I, I doubt all of those movies are classics. No, no. I, and and I, I'm not saying like there's, you know, a Jason Takes Manhattan of the bunch, but, you know, maybe they're a little little schlockier, a little bit more action packed. They might be. But also like just the I don't know. I feel like the Yakuza genre, it's it, it's it's one of those things that based on it being less accessible in America. And I'm talking about when this these films came out. I think that makes them more drive-in type movies because you had to go out of your way to see them. You wouldn't see them at just your regular multiplex. This movie, no one even knows when it's like North American premiere was. There wasn't like anything written about it. I guess by that nature, in, in America anyways, it's a cult movie. In Japan, it's not. In Japan, it was it was like a blockbuster. But in Ameri- in, in, in our Western context, I think this fits in Oh, at least a little bit to what mm. we're kind of going for with these kinds of movies. I guess it fits in the same way that Godzilla fits in. I mean, the original Japanese Godzilla. I mean, but Godzilla is a monster movie, though, too. I mean, I know, I know it's a masterpiece, but it's also <laughs> like monster movies are monster movies are driving. Like King Kong is a masterpiece, but that's kind of a driving movie because it's a big monster doing stuff. Yeah. And, yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about something that's not really a masterpiece, but it's certainly a piece. Okay, so as promised, uh, hinted a little bit at the background of Gone with the Pope, so I'm going to get into it more here before we really jump into the plot. Gone with the Pope is a film that was made in 1975-76 by director Duke Mitchell, who was a lounge singer who, I guess just in the 70s, just wanted to finance his own independent gangster movies. He made, I think, two of them. (laughs) <laughs> there's this, obviously, which wasn't released for decades. And then there's also Massacre Mafia Style, which came out, I think, in 74. So that was, I guess, made before that. That's also really been released by Grindhouse Releasing, although that did see a release actually in the 70s, as far as I know. The story goes with Grindhouse Releasing. Grindhouse Releasing is founded by... Bob Murawski and Sage Stallone. Bob Murawski is a film editor. He's he's edited edited some Sam Raimi movies. He has a credit on The Hurt Locker. Oh. And Sage Stallone. Sage Stallone, of course, the son of Sylvester, who was the obnoxious kid in Rocky V, unfortunately. Passed away recently. Passed away young. I think it was a drug overdose. Age of 36. Jeez. But two of them founded Grindhouse Releasing. Obviously, they appear to have love and affection for cult movies, but more specifically the Grindhouse-type cult movies. So, because, you know, there's a variety of cult movies, but, like, Grindhouse releasing has done stuff with, like, the movie Pieces. Like, Pieces has gotten a Grindhouse re- release, and, and they've had movies <laughs> you, like you that. Mean, like, you mean one of our favorite movies? You can call it that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. They've done, they've, but they, they go for the sleeves for the most part. I don't think they'll necessarily handle any cult movie for instance i don't think grindhouse releasing would do a blu-ray of bella lugosi meets a brooklyn gorilla (laughs) i could be wrong but i bring that film up because of course duke mitchell star of bella lugosi meets a brooklyn gorilla so duke mitchell this is i did my research on this and okay so duke mitchell was a lounge singer he's an italian lounge singer like a dean martin like a sinatra that era well like in the sense that 
He's not a bad singer. He's not a bad singer, but he's not Dean no. Martin. He's not Frank Sinatra. No, of course not. And, and yeah, he's not Bobby Darren either. I mean, listen, I'm not saying he's I'm not saying he's Bing Crosby here. Okay, yeah. I'm just saying he's what was it? He's the king of the uh, king of Palm Springs. It sounds like to me the um, lounge singer version of if you're a stand-up comedian and you're the king of the Catskills. It's like it says a, a certain thing about like how actually popular you were. It's like you're not not popular, but I don't know if you could hack it in L.A. or New York, you know. Um, but Saduke Mitchell, he has a passing resemblance to Dean Martin, looks-wise, supposedly. I, I don't really see it. No. But he meets up with another lounge singer slash almost like borderline vaudevillian comedian named Sammy Petrillo. And at the time, Martin and Lewis are the biggest comedy duo in the world. And this is something that I think people our age might need to be reminded of because we now think of Dean Martin as just Rat Pack singer. Mm-hmm priest and cannonball run like he's you don't really think of the jerry lewis connection but they were they were a comedy team they did movies they did lounge type stuff and the comedy act as far as i can tell was dean martin would sing Mm -hmm. and he'd be like a classy and maybe a little drunk because dean martin does the drunk thing really well (laughs) and jerry lewis would be his goofy self jerry lewis is basically like it's like if you mix Jim Carrey with like Adam Sandler, like he's doing the goofy voices and stuff. And, yeah. and it's not my thing, but it was no. hugely popular at the yeah, time. Yeah, it, it was a lot of people's thing back in the day. They were probably two of the most popular people in America on television for a while. Yeah. And when that when that duo disbanded, there were a lot of people that thought like, oh, Dean Martin, like what's what's he doing? Like he, he's, he's going to be nothing without Jerry Lewis. <laughs> yeah. And then it actually turns out to be the other way around because Dean Martin made another friend named Frank Sinatra, who was <laughs> a lot more powerful and influential than Jerry Lewis turned out to be. But but that's because but that's because Sinatra was with the American Yakuza, a.k.a. the Mafia. <laughs> well, you sure. So. Some someone gets the bright idea to team up Duke Mitchell with this one guy named Sammy Petrillo, who <laughs> basically did a Jerry Lewis impression, and the two of them toured as Martin and Lewis knockoffs. It's it's amazing that this went on. Like, uh, can you imagine? I don't know. I'm just picturing like. Well, people do that with like with bands, right? Like, like there's yeah, but they're they're not they don't get get starring in, in feature films. And listen, I know Bela Lugosi meets a Brooklyn Gorilla is no Gone with the Wind, but <laughs> no, but you know there is Gone with the. But Pope. yeah, there's Elvis impersonators, but Elvis is also dead. It's a little different. <laughs> so someone agrees to make a movie with this Martin and Lewis ripoff team. I've seen it. It's interesting. It's obnoxious. Sammy Petrillo, you want to smack him in the face. He's terrible. Duke Mitchell's fine. He he does a, his song or two. And it's like, okay, this is this is fine. But yeah, the whole point is this is Duke Mitchell's background. He's not just some Neil Breen guy who just like picks up filmmaking. Mm-hmm. This is a guy who was born and bred in Sleaze to begin with, where he's ripping <laughs> off a popular comedy duo. And I just think that's interesting because I, th- I think, like, how did he even become a thing? He was successful. He, he funded these movies himself because he had made so much money lounge singing. He was apparently friends with Sinatra. I read that somewhere. Okay, yeah, sure. Sinatra was probably too smart to ever take a photo with him yeah. or something. but. <laughs> yeah. So the Grindhouse releasing folks, Murawski and 
Stallone go up to Jeffrey Mitchell, Duke Mitchell's son, who appears in the film. He's credited as, like, drug user or something, so I think he just has that one scene in prison where he tells him to, you know, what did you promise? You said you weren't going to do any of this stuff. Oh, yes, yeah. But he also does the song, the Jackknife song. That's Jeffrey Mitchell. It plays a few times in the film. It's awesome. It it is an awesome song. It's so awesome. But all of the songs that they used in this movie, I was like... Again, this is why I thought the movie was a spoof on 70s movies. Because I was like, none of this sounds right or correct. And it all looks too good. Like, like too 70s. You know what I mean? Yeah. So Jeffrey Mitchell says, listen, I don't need... Because they they want to do a Blu-ray release or like a re-release of Massacre Mafia style, which is the Duke Mitchell film that came out in his lifetime. And Jeffrey Mitchell's like, "Uh, I don't know if I can help you with that, but there's this other movie that he made that never got released. And they're like, holy shit, did we we strike gold here? And with Gone with the Pope, I think it's debatable if they did, but I'm going to say they did. But it's a a specific type of gold. I will say, and, and again, going back to what I said at the outset, that this film is more interesting than entertaining. Mm hmm. Which I stand by. I think all this background we've talked about, like who Duke Mitchell is, is fascinating. What, How this movie even existed. Because like the movie was completed, but at the same time, and I, I, I paid attention to this. I, I caught a few things that were probably changed by Grindhouse releasing. There was a few sound effects that I feel like were definitely added I think it's possible the music was all added later because in this generally in the scenes when there's music playing there's like no sound in the movie yes, otherwise yeah. but maybe that's just inept filmmaking back in the 70s it could be that You know what I thought was added the scene it kind of like like pretty early on in the movie where his dog is barking like off screen Hamlet yeah. His yeah. dog, Hamlet. Or actually, I don't even think it's his dog. I think it's the girlfriend's the dog. dog. Yeah. 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 But it's barking. And then he goes, quiet down. Just sit down. And then there's a cut to the dog, like, sitting. And then it cuts back mm-hmm. to him. <laughs> and I was like, was that filmed in, like, a 70s, like, museum house? House museum? You know? I don't know. This, this movie gave well, me a headache it, for a while. Well, yeah. And, but what I was saying is that... This movie, I would say, is collectively funny. Like, on a whole, it's very funny that it's just as weird as it is and as stupid as it is. But but there were very few laughs I actually had in the moment. Now, there's one where I had to pause the movie because I was laughing so hard. <laughs> we'll get to that. It feels like a real movie early on, right? Well, actually, no. Hang on. It does, but it doesn't because I have to talk about the opening credits. Hey, listen to this. People of the United States. Judges, cops, all the law, I've got something for you. Take this and stick it up in your mother's twat. So we open credits, nice gothic font, Gone with the Pope, some Michelangelo paintings. We have the opening narration by Duke Mitchell where he's recounting the creation narrative. Goes on for forever. Yeah. Uh, and then it ends up with like, and and he fucked everything up. Like, so yeah, it ends yeah. Up kind he's, of a, he's a like, joke. He, he made he made man, and he fucked everything up. Couple notes on the credits, though. One, I would say about half the characters have the same first name as the actors who play them, which is always exciting because it just makes me think that these people aren't really actors, or you know, <laughs> they, um, no, Duke Mitchell is not that. Duke Mitchell plays Paul. But there's a Peter that plays Peter, I think. There's a, 
you know, there's a gene that plays gene, a lot of that stuff. (laughs) There's also um, something that I've been talking about with my uh, dad a lot recently is, is, you know, you see movies, they'll have their opening credits, and they usually use one of the bigger names to be the last one, and it'll be like, and so-and-so as whatever. Mm -hmm. That's a relatively modern thing. Like, you don't see it back in, like, the 40s, for instance. But my my dad and I have been talking about, like, okay, so if you take this movie and you were doing the credits, who would be your and person? And, like, you know, like, the original Superman. Like, obviously, it's going to be and Marlon Brando as drunken father yeah. or whatever, you know? <laughs> Casablanca. It's probably going to be and Claude Rains or maybe and Peter Lorre. Like, still mm-hmm. a big name. Mm-hmm but not necessarily the main character. And this, the and that they use in this movie is Nola Hand as the fat woman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I wrote that down because that's amazing. <laughs> and then also the, the credits, it says titles by, and there's two names. One of them is just the guy who designed the titles, did the font. The other one is Michelangelo. Michelangelo <laughs> gets a credit in this movie. <laughs> I know, I saw that. I had to pause it. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> Yeah, he's rolling in his grave right now. No, Michelangelo is getting royalties from from the gun with the Pope Blu-ray release. Yeah, from 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 all the tourists visiting the Sistine the Sistine Chapel and this. Moving on to the movie proper, we open with seven or no, it's it's these gangsters maybe in Chicago. I'm not really sure. Meeting outside, and they're talking about how seven people won't sell. I don't think we ever hear about what this, what exactly the dispute is, but seven people won't won't sell, so they need to figure out, they need to find a way to, okay, okay, can we kill these guys? And then they're like, yeah, we need someone who's going to be new to this, and he'll stay out of the way, and, and because they, they plan on killing the guy that assassinates these people, so they decide to hire Paul. Paul is just getting out of prison. They figure... He'll be he'll be able to do it, and then they can just kill him after, and they can get their $100,000 back because they're going to pay him $100,000. Paul has one ambition in his life, and that's to hang out with his three friends. Yes. Yeah. And go on a boat ride together. and um, Which, you know, kind of a nice ambition. Oh, sure. Yeah, this guy, I mean, I guess he obviously has been involved in the gangster lifestyle one way or, or another prior to this because he's in prison, but he doesn't seem like a bad guy. He's given his goodbye to everybody and uh including the the one guy talks to this one guy he's like you have the most beautiful singing voice in the world and i know and i know a guy that owns a nightclub and we're gonna when you get out we're gonna welcome you in there and stuff and it's like okay this is yeah he seems like a likable guy so he gets out and he takes up with a widow named Jean, who i guess he has a history with yeah or and like, i guess it, her husband died i think when paul was in prison yeah or like i thought he knew her husband yeah they did i think they were friends but yeah like it's a beautiful house and she's got lots of rolls royces it's 70s beautiful yeah yeah you're right yeah the 70s interior decorating and the 70s is the worst decade for a lot of visual things <laughs> yeah. uh, decade or you know fashion we'll get to the some of the fashion you know whatever those like super super triangular collars are it's obviously a great movie for that yeah well a great movie for i'm going to unbutton all of my buttons except for the bottom two so i just have the deepest v-neck in the world basically (laughs) yeah yeah and then of course the famous jacket that on the front i think has a dog with a monocle and on the back (laughs) has like a woman in a bikini it's the weirdest (laughs) weirdest outfit you've ever seen 
yeah, that's great. For some reason, when I think of like when I see seventies clothing and like cars and, and I like, want to throw up. Well, and I, I get the, I get the smell of gasoline fumes and cigarette smoke. In my definitely nose. cigarette like, smoke. Yeah, that's what I think. Well, because the the smoke just gets caught in that shag carpeting, yeah. and you, know, you can't <laughs> yeah. avoid it. Yeah. Also, we should talk about Duke Mitchell just visually. First of all, he's got this. Everyone has Elvis sunglasses in this movie. Duke Mitchell also has the big sideburns, not unlike Elvis in the seventies, but they're a little unruly. They're a little um, puffy. And, and they're they're super puffy. But like I, I'm devoted to sideburns. I, I am far more devoted to sideburns than just about anyone else of this generation. Sideburns, for the most part, are out. I don't care. I love them. Uh, <laughs> you need to trim them though. You they can't be that bushy. No, they can't. No. It looks like squirrel tails on him. That's, yeah, they're the same color, too. He just looks like somebody's dad. You know what I mean? Like, there's nothing. Well, he is. We, we see his son in the film. Yeah, but no, you know what I mean, though? Like, he just looks like somebody's father that liked movies and wanted to make a movie, you know? I thought he, sure. could, he, could, he could star in it. Yeah, I would say less than looks like it. That's certainly what the movie feels like. Yeah. It doesn't feel like, I mean, it feels like some guy just wanted to make a movie and then Someone either gave him a budget, or in the case of Duke Mitchell, he actually could afford to just shoot in Rome and stuff. And uh, but yeah, so okay, so we have a date montage with Paul and Jean set to a Duke Mitchell song. Um, <laughs> it's a, it's a weird date where they're kind of just like walking around. Then suddenly they're at like a skate park, and you just see people like doing bike tricks going by. And it's like what? Yeah. And then they're on a miniature railroad. <laughs> And uh, Duke Mitchell is hiding his face yeah. from the camera. He has his like hand up, like almost like he's embarrassed. Yeah. So that the date montage happens. So, so I guess the Gene and Paul relationship. Gene wants Paul to basically just give up crime and just live with her because she's super wealthy mm-hmm. because her husband was loaded rich. He's dead. I'm not sure whose pet bear that is. <laughs> um, yeah. Hamlet, the world's largest dog. It's just a uh, is it Great Dane. That's what it looks like, yeah. Yeah, it looks like Marmaduke. It's just the biggest dog you've ever seen. <laughs> it's just like comically large. There's a scene, <laughs> there's a scene where where Paul is like on a balcony or something. He's just like sitting down. And the dog is like kind of on his lap, but the dog was like still standing yeah. and it was just like <laughs> yeah, just taking up over. that much space. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, so Paul. He's he's going to do this assassination thing. He has to assassinate these seven guys, but he's playing it smart because he suspects they might want to end up killing him after it's all done. So he's going to hire an accomplice because three people need to be killed in Vegas, four people need to be killed in L.A. So he goes to get Giorgio to kill the three people in Vegas at the same time that he kills the four people in L.A. so that the mob knows he had an accomplice and maybe they might not want to kill him. Because mm-hmm. they don't know how deep it goes. Genuinely brilliant plan, I think. Yeah, it's it's clever enough, and um, we get a lot of shots of. Uh, I, I I assume Duke Mitchell being the the nightclub singer. He probably was in Vegas a lot. I mean, I know he's the king of Palm Springs, but <laughs> um, there's there's a lot of shots of like the the all these neon signs of Vegas, the strip and downtown. There's a little bit more downtown probably, but like all the sands, the dunes, like these old 70s casinos. The shot of the Caesar's Palace sign is like 
really weird one because you you look through it through you look at the caesar's palace sign like through a fountain it's almost like they were trying to hide the caesar's palace sign for like legal purposes or something oh it was just weird i don't know why they i don't know why they framed the shot that way they could have just gotten an actual shot where you can see the sign clearly i don't know but (laughs) he eventually finds giorgio at one of the downtown casinos this topless casino there's one very very poorly lit woman stripping or whatever at the casino but he finds giorgio who looks a lot like tom savini and who can barely speak English. I don't know who this guy is. But. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually impressed. I was like, wait a minute. I was like, this yeah, is this just some random guy they found, right? Yeah, and I don't know if he's doing an accent or if that's like him. I don't know, but he just talks weird. So Giorgio agrees to to handle this assassination. And the assassination starts on June 14th when Paul calls Giorgio from Hollywood. Although I am skipping over the numerous cutaways to this, like, nightclub band slash comedy act that's utterly terrible yes who oh, are yeah. those no. people that, that has to be like duke mitchell probably knew that guy right like the the gray-haired guy maybe i don't know but it was like what was it there was like uh one two three there was like five people on stage somebody i think had like a stand-up bass one guy two had... people with with horns of yeah. some sort there was a there was a seven foot tall woman on guitar <laughs> she was like really tall <laughs> And then an old man with like a... With yeah, a, the old gray-haired man. Who is that the same guy that he gambles next to at the blackjack table? I think it is. He looks similar. Maybe. But whatever comedy troupe that was, was I just couldn't wait for them to leave. And the movie devoted like three minutes A lot of time, of time them, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot of time. Because they do this comedy thing. At first when they're just playing music, it's like, okay, this is fine. This is just like for an establishing that this is... Okay, this is... There's music at this casino. The next time, I think it's the day of the assassination, they're doing a comedy dance, a comedy song and dance, and the gray-haired, the old guy, is doing these different dances, comedy dances, and he does the pit boss dance where he just walks around like he's looking at the crowd for something, and then he, like, picks his nose, (laughs) and the crowd loves it, and it's like, this is terrible. And he does some other stupid ones, too. I can't remember what they are. So the the assassinations are kind of intercut because Giorgio disguises himself as a waiter. He actually doesn't. He just wears his normal clothes. But he <laughs> but he comes he comes to the hotel room and claims to be room service. And then he pulls out a gun and shoots the my, three people. My favorite part about that is he shows up to the room and under the <laughs> under the like in the, on the serving tray is the gun. It's like why yeah. don't you just have it in your pocket, you fucking idiot? Why? I it, he wanted it. it. It's more gangster. It's more gangster <laughs> movie visual if you pull it out of so. the thing, right? That's yeah, um. I guess it's stupid. But yeah, and then uh, Duke Mitchell Paul has some meeting with people with the four people that he's supposed to kill who i don't even know who these people are at like an italian restaurant he's supposed to bring them money but he pulls out his gun out of the briefcase and he shoots them and again these two different assassination events are kind of cut in between and this was my first laugh of the movie this is the one where i I had to pause it the guy's like why not yeah (laughs) And it's the funniest, most awkward line delivery. I know, that was great. Just, why not? Boom. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, this is where we get our first use of the Jeffrey Mitchell song, Jackknife, which unfortunately I cannot find anywhere. 
I would love to listen to this song again, but uh, yeah, it's, it's cool used song. it's used in the trailer for uh, Gone with the Pope, but that's it's a two minute video. That's not the full song. His friends, Paul's friends, get out of prison. Uh, they carry around an altar or like a kneeling thing. Mm-hmm. So his three friends are Peter. Uh, who's the other one? Oh, it's Luke because they're both like um, both biblical names, gospel names. Oh, well, Peter didn't write a gospel, but he's heavily featured in them, believe it or not. And then the old man doesn't get a name. He's just the old oh, man. Oh, that's right. That's right, yeah. Who also just disappears from the movie. I mean, it, I understand some of the context of why he disappears, but it never really makes sense why they never say what happens to him. I forget. Was he on the boat with them, though? At the start. Yeah, 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 right. Spoilers, yeah. He, he, he is swapped out for the Pope. <laughs> Because he's played by the same actor that plays the Pope, so that's why they can't have those two guys together. But just weird, weird stuff. But Okay, so again, at this point, we're probably, what, a half hour into the movie. The movie's called Gone with the Pope. The movie is about people kidnapping the Pope and charging ransom for a dollar for every Catholic in the world. And that, that's what been, they said, but but didn't they say it was 50 cents in the movie? Yes, they get to that. But, they, but there has been not one hint of that. There has been not one hint of anything... Papal, anything religious. This is just like a weird gangster movie so far. But Paul ends up borrowing his girlfriend Jean's yacht, and he's taking his three friends. They're going to go out. He maps out their trip to Mazatlan, then through the Panama Canal, to Caracas, to Morocco, and then Sardinia, and then eventually Anzio, which is where the old man fought so, in the war. He's like, I landed there. He goes, well, you're yeah. going back. But then also, if you so he draws out his uh, his his route in pen, and then in this montage as they're traveling, you'll see he goes over the sharpie of where they go, and they don't follow the route necessarily. No, yeah, it's just strange. And then also they go to Rome, not Anzio, or so who knows? But <laughs> it's also a lovely scene, a very awkward scene, where Paul hugs Peter. Oh, well, he spits coffee on him first, then he hugs him, and then very clearly unhooks, like, his chain necklace. Yeah. And the necklace falls. Well, and I th- well it, it slides along all 50 feet yes. of, their, of their yacht. <laughs> but, but, yeah, we see we see shots of this thing falling, and I, I did not think this was going to be important, and it's super important. But <laughs> I also think it was supposed to be, like, the, the, the necklace just fell, but... Duke Mitchell's very clearly, like, unfastening it, yeah. so it just looks weird. But Peter's upset because he's like, oh, that's, that's my chain. That's my mother's chain. My mother gave it to me. I, and Duke Mitchell's like, oh, I'll get buy you another chain. He's like, but I want that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so seemingly pointless scene ends up being important. The, so the the four of them eventually arrive in Rome, and we meet up with them. They're sitting, like, outdoor at a cafe. And everyone's, like, complaining, like, how long are we going to be in Rome? And then Paul's like, we'll be here a couple weeks. <laughs> and he's like, we're going to kidnap the Pope. And it's like, what the, where the hell did this come from? Yeah, and then, and then how does he, like, he explains it. He's like, we're going to kidnap the Pope because that's the hardest thing to do. It would be nearly impossible to kidnap the Pope. And anybody who pulls it off, you know, is amazing. And I'm like... What the fuck? Why didn't you try to rob a casino? How about that? You know, <laughs> why did you pick the Pope? Yeah, I it's it's strange. It's it's strange for a number of reasons. One, it comes out of nowhere. There's been nothing to hint at any kind of motivation Paul might have. We get a little bit later, and then everyone just goes along with it. Like no one is like 
no, this is stupid, but also no one's like, oh, yeah, great idea. And everyone's just like, oh, yeah, okay. Everybody's just like, well, I guess we're here anyway, so we should kidnap the Pope. Yeah, so then Paul wears a disguise for some reason, even though no one knows who he is at Rome. And uh, (laughs) Well, he he does, obviously, the disguise himself as a priest, which makes sense. But he also puts on a fake mustache. Is it a wig too? Oh no, no, you're right, you're right. I'm thinking the other. Yeah, no, yeah, just, just the. Mustache. But yeah, he looks like he looks like Christopher Lee, <laughs> and um, he goes up to a priest. The priest says like something to him in Italian. He's like, "Do you speak English?" And the guy's like, "Yes." And it's like he speaks like no accent whatsoever. Yeah. After he says, "Oh, oh, okay," I thought this guy's Italian, but whatever. And he and Paul says, "I need to meet with the Pope." And he's like, "I know this sounds crazy, but I have." single access to like a really wealthy billionaire who's like dying and he wants to meet the pope because he wants to give away all his money or something like there's some yeah something along those lines yeah and and but 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 then the priest is like i don't really know and then paul goes listen tell the pope that king of palm springs wants to talk to him (laughs) yeah so paul plans the kidnapping in about 10 seconds and then we have the fat lady scene. Oh, wait, hold on. Is... Okay, hold on. No, hold on. Before we get to that, my favorite part okay. about the... First off, there's actually really nice shots of Rome. There are. And yeah, like, I like and, the, the and reflection the and the sunglasses looks cool. That is cool. And then you get great shots of, like, the Pieta, you know, Michelangelo's Pieta, the, the Vatican Well, Michelangelo is, was involved in this film. You're right, exactly, it. yeah. It, like, it all looks nice. It's actually kind of, like really pleasurable to look at but then you realize you're watching this fucking movie but my favorite part about this about planning the, the kidnapping of the pope is that he pulls up like this little map yeah and he goes <laughs> he goes he spends first, 10 seconds on it tops. yeah he looks at it he goes first we're gonna go here and then around here yeah and then through we'll here okay the river or something yeah it's like <laughs> yeah. oh okay it's that it's gonna be that easy yeah, I know. no mention of the swiss guard in this film yeah the most terrifying devastating military slash security slash national security force in the entire world believe it or not we don't think of them that because they like that because Because they they wear kind of goofy costumes but those are the toughest motherfuckers on earth well also (laughs) also speaking of goofy i like how (laughs) when they're sitting there they're trying to like uh and paul's like how are we gonna get the pope out of there he pulls up his binoculars first off they're sitting in like in his backyard yeah, and, <laughs> you know, and then it just cuts to a shot of like the of the Vatican, and then you just see the Pope standing in the window, like he fucking hangs out at the window every single day. Yeah, which how does that shot work? Is that the real Pope, or I I would assume so. Like I assume it it has to be right because it's not because there's no way they snuck an actor into there. No, no, they actually filmed this in Rome, so maybe the Pope was giving like an address or something. I, I don't know. Yeah, in this and this could even be like stock footage of like the Pope gave some kind of address, but it does appear to be like kind of empty there. Yeah. Whatever they did, it's kind of somewhat impressive that they pulled that off. But this would be, they never say the name of the Pope, but this would be Pope Paul VI in in historical Mm. times. But yeah, so there's the fat lady scene, which is the worst scene I think I've seen in a film. And also... (laughs) utterly pointless <laughs> utterly like I nothing nothing understand. to do with the movie we got like goofy music and paul sees a fat lady walking in a park is she walking a dog and he brings her into the hotel room with um i don't i don't know if it's peter or if it's luke who's in bed i these characters i doesn't matter I don't know which one's which <laughs> and then they place her in the bed 
well, she also like takes off her clothes or most of them, and it's it's like horribly demeaning to this poor lady. Like, oh, one hundred percent. That yeah. Duke Mitchell's like helping her take off the clothes. Like, it's just uncomfortable to see all this while it's like got goofy music playing. And she's in bed, and then either Peter or Luke wakes up, and then she kind of like rolls on top of him a little bit, and then she falls like. In between and the I guess two there's, beds? Yeah, there's two yeah. beds pushed together, which I didn't realize. That was just one big bed, and so she's, like, stuck in between there. And then Paul and either Peter or Luke just, like, giddily run out of the room and hold the door closed as this fat lady is trying to chase after them. Yeah, and then she eventually breaks the door right. down. But, like, but it's worse than that because, like, you actually have to watch the scene for yourself to understand how uncomfortable it is. Paul oh, starts trying to undress her, and she's like, yeah. and she's kind of motioning. She's like, no, no, I can do it myself. And he goes, oh, okay. Well, then she starts taking her clothes off, and you're like, oh my god, please stop. And you're taking your clothes off for this fucking movie. I, I hope they paid you well, which I'm sure they didn't. Well, she does get the, it, it's, this is Nola Hand as the fat woman, so yeah. maybe she was paid yeah, well, that's, I don't know. that's nice, I guess. I'm I'm going to assume she at least wasn't alive to see this movie when it was released, which Ugh. might be good for her, you know? Yeah. Well, then, because well, then she's wearing, like, uh, stockings, right? Mm-hmm. And Duke Mitchell's trying to, like, pull them off of her, but he's doing it, he's, like, so exaggeratedly. Like, he's got his foot over her ass, like, in the stockings, yeah. and you're just like, what's going on, dude? But also, we skipped over a, my favorite scene in the movie, and it's near the beginning when he's talking to, like, those guys in the bar. Oh, yeah. Oh, the prostitute yeah, scene. Yeah. yeah. But he's like, but it's a black woman. The horribly racist calling scene. calling her like racial slurs. And yeah. And he pays her 300 bucks to like fuck 100 his A hundred person, yeah. Yeah. And he, he's like, and, he, and she's like, oh, do you want some too? He goes, no. He goes, I'm not going to fuck a black woman. Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, he ends up though, because well, he's, he's the only one sober enough to actually fuck her. So. Exactly. But it's like amazing. Like it was like the most incredibly racist scene I've seen in a movie, I think, in my life. And that's like including things like Schindler's List, you know. Well, Schindler's List, though. I mean, the I, I don't think you can compare, compare it to that because that's like a movie that's about racism. Yeah. This is just like a casually racist scene. This is more on par with like the Love Guru. It's bizarre. He's like, like, there's a line where he's like, "Oh no," he goes, "I wouldn't pick you. You should be picking cotton or something." <laughs> and she, yeah, and she like laughs at like all of his terrible racist jokes, and it's like, yeah. okay, this is first of all. For what it's worth, that black woman, who I believe is uncredited, because I looked at all of the names that they have in IMDb, there is one female character, and it's Jean. So I don't think this poor woman was credited, but I'm going to say she's the best actress in the movie, best actor. She is, and she's beautiful. And and she just gets racial slurs thrown at her for five yeah, minutes. Yeah, you're right. So there's there are two horribly horribly uncomfortable scenes in this film one racist the other fat phobic but like equally uncomfortable like just like i don't want to see this mm-hmm. i at least got some enjoyment out of the racist scene because it was so bizarre. it was like funny how shockingly terrible it was the yeah the fat yeah. lady scene isn't funny it's just horribly uncomfortable and yes. it's it's like why did you do this why is this in the movie yeah i totally agree with you Feels like a crazy person made that scene, and it is Duke Mitchell. But um, <laughs> so a crazy person did make it, yeah. Exactly. So Paul and the boys are granted audience with the Pope, not exclusive audience, because there's nuns, there's children, all these people coming to meet the Pope. And Duke Mitchell goes up to him again. He's got the mustache, and he whispers something in the Pope's ear, and then kind of shows that he has a gun. So the Pope follows him into like a closet. <laughs> And then the old man also walks into the closet, and he has the old man and 
the Pope switch outfits. And I think the old man has a wig, too. This scene, very, very weird. In this scene, when they in the closet, the audio is just so awkward. It's like, it's clear everything's like overdubbed. But when uh, Paul is leaving the closet, he says something to, at, at this point, he has the Pope who's now dressed as the old man. And he says something to the old man who's now dressed as the Pope. He's like, be sure you're on that plane at 730 tonight or whatever. And it's like, very clearly not what he's saying when yeah. you see his mouth. <laughs> but it's also, it's really weird because it's it's still Duke Mitchell. So like Duke Mitchell is yeah. behind all of these decisions. This isn't a decision made by Bob Murawski and Sage Stallone. They didn't get like someone just to say a line because they lost the audio for this scene. No, they must have just filmed the scene without audio and then Duke Mitchell did all the dubbing later and it's just terrible, but it's but it's great. So Paul, Peter, and Luke take the Pope to the yacht. The old man is supposedly going to take a flight out, but we never hear from him again, ever. It's really <laughs> weird. <laughs> This is where I'm going to say that Gone with the Pope, first of all, it's a comedy title. Mm -hmm. I would almost think that the title was added later, that this was like a 2010 decision to title it this movie because you want to make it sound kind of silly because it's a weird movie. But I mean, the titles that Michelangelo himself designed, I mean, it, it says Gone with the Pope. So I assume those are the original titles, the original title of the movie. But I think you could make a darkly comedic movie about someone kidnapping the Pope. That's not what this is. But it could have been. And I think there, there'd be, there's a missed opportunity for a really fun scene with the old man like pretending to be the Pope for like the next hour or so <laughs> before he's able to sneak out. And I think he's going to change clothes with like a janitor outfit or something. But like there's just like a fun scene there because he has to go back out there and it's all these nuns and stuff who speak Italian. They have to go up to him and he has to like pretend to bless them. Like that would be mm -hmm. fun to see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then and then instead of anything funny, we just get these guys hanging out with the Pope on their boat for like the next yeah. 25 minutes. Yeah. And they uh, it's 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 kind of funny. They they kidnap him. The Pope's not super worried. He's just kind of casual. And there's they're also I mean, at the same time, they're super nice to him. They like give him a Bible. They give him all these candles and stuff. He's just like resting in bed most of the time. He actually like strikes up a friendship really with Peter and Luke. He at some point asked them like why they're doing this and, and they're both like, oh, this isn't really our decision. This is just something Paul says it and we kind of just go along with it. And so the Pope decides to talk to Paul. He talks to him up on the surface of the yacht and Paul goes in his uh, rant about how you know, there's starving people, there's people suffering, and then the church is incredibly wealthy, and it could put a stop to all this human suffering. They could have put a stop to the Holocaust because Mussolini was in the Pope's back pocket and could have, would have just done whatever. So they could have, like, had some sway over Hitler, but they didn't use the power there. So that's his thing. So finally mm -hmm. we get motivation for why he doesn't like the Pope. It's, it's, it comes after he kidnaps the Pope, but we get it. I don't know. You know, it, it would have been nice to get that before the Pope. Because, you know, it's not like some... It would have been nice to get something, even some information early in the film that reveals that he's a lapsed Catholic and we can see why he's lapsed later on in the film. That's fine. We need something. We need a, we need a mention of the Pope or of the church before we're actually planning to kidnap him. It just does It's just weird. And again, this is the part where you have to say... Well, this movie was found in a dumpster. Like, maybe yeah. <laughs> there were scenes. Yeah. I don't think there were. I, I did read on IMDb that some reels were, like, damaged or something, and they had to do some, like, 
but it doesn't sound like anything was truly missing or, or just not shot. It does sound like this is the final film, which makes it weird because it seems like there are scenes missing early in the first half. Yes, yeah. And it almost seems like some of it's out of order, and I don't think that's true either. It's just kind of weird, the assassinations that he does after he gets back to America. almost feel like those were—should those have happened before? Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. So the Pope, he's talking to Peter— Peter, of course, the fisherman, because the St. Peter, and and Peter is indeed fishing off the yacht, and he's like, hey, I'm going to catch you a fish. What's your favorite fish? And he's like, "Uh, I like cod. Peter's like, yeah, that's right. I'm going to catch you a cod. And he catches a cod, and they're like, everyone's like so excited, and I love this. The Pope's like, (laughs) go ahead and clean it, and we'll, we'll eat it tonight or whatever. And as he's cutting it open, he finds his chain. He finds the chain. That was lost. He says he lost it in Malibu, which actually isn't accurate because at the point in which he loses the chain, I think they're supposed to be in like Mexico or something. They, they because yeah, yeah. the Sharpie has already gone south of California. Yeah, and then it's like, oh, that was why the chain. It's like the the weirdest. It it paid off. It was the most yeah. awkward editing and everything with the chain, but it, it's I'm glad it's paying off. And I like these scenes where it's just like charming, and the Pope is like winning these two guys over, and it's like, oh my God, is the was there? Did we literally just witness a miracle? Like this is like, <laughs> what direction is this movie going in? It's just like really interesting. Eventually. Peter and Paul both decide that, hey, we don't want anything to do with the kidnapping of this pope. We're going to leave with the pope. And Paul, you can't do anything about it. It's actually the pope that informs him. And there's a really great Duke Mitchell scene where he flips out. There's a little bit of confusion of of like who the you is when he says it sometimes and and who he's looking at when he seems to be referring to somebody else. But yeah. Overall, I actually think it's a fairly well-acted scene. He's screaming. He admits that he killed seven people for these people for peter and paul and he's like you guys i'm responsible for you i've clothed you i fed you and then he's like pope you handle these people like you you and i'm like thinking like i think the pope can handle that yeah pope has people yeah well it's it's also it's also (laughs) like he's kind of doing his little speech is he's like i am your your savior yeah that's how he sees i am your christ that's how he sees it but also like is he, though? I mean, he's their friend. He didn't get them out of prison. They just got released. He didn't. And then he's like, let's go on this yacht trip. And they're like, oh, sure, that'll be fun. And then it's like, hey, let's kidnap the Pope. And they're like, what? And <laughs> it's like, what? Is it, are, are, have we seen anything to suggest that these people couldn't survive without him? I, I just and, – and also – it's not his yacht. It's Jean's yacht. Jean, yeah. Jean's the caregiver here. Whether she, she doesn't even know who these guys are, really. But yeah, I don't know. It's just strange. But we get the goodbye. It's like, it's like. It, I also think it's interesting. No one's. I mean, he's angry in this scene, but when he's saying goodbye to them, he seems to kind of move on. He does say he's like, if anything happens to these guys, I'll kill a hundred priests in retaliation. Yeah. But in the in the touching goodbye scene, he gives the Pope his jacket with the um, dog with the monocle on it, and also the woman in the bikini on the back. And he's like, "I know you. I know you don't like the artwork, but here, just take this. This will keep you warm." And it's like, "Oh my God! I I wish I I hope I could find that jacket at a Goodwill or something." So 
Paul makes his way back to California by himself. He's greeted at the docks by Gene. Then, oh, and also the Pope asks him, I guess Christmas is coming up sometime soon. Mm-hmm. And the Pope asks him, like, will you please light a candle for us at Christmas time? He agrees to it, but you think, like, okay, he's probably not going to do it. But he's hanging out with Gene. They're celebrating their Christmas activities in uh, snow-filled L.A.? Where the hell is this? Because <laughs> they're in L.A. Like, I, it's it's confusing because there's one reference to the gangsters being from Chicago. Wait, wait, wait. Is there snow there? I thought it was There's just... snow. They go to a ski hill. Oh, yeah. In L.A.? <laughs> How far north do you have to go from L.A.? There's no way it's a day trip because they come back. It's like still Christmas Eve. <laughs> it's confusing because it's like, were they even in L.A.? Because I know he killed those people in Hollywood, but there's a reference to the gangsters being from Chicago. There's like one line about that. But then it's like, no, he's definitely in L.A. because they, he maps everything out when they leave. Or yes, he's in Newport. Yeah. I think they leave from Newport Beach. So on, on Christmas Eve, the, the news breaks that the Pope has been returned. The Pope will allow his two captors slash saviors to live at the Vatican for the rest of their lives. And he's like, they're, we're not pressing any charges. There is a third person involved, but we're not revealing his name. And, and I assume they're talking about Paul, but they could be talking about the old man yeah. there, too. I mean, because the old man, again, just disappears. Yeah. W- <laughs> wouldn't it be great if the old man's still impersonating the Pope at the Vatican? You know? <laughs> And then also, I, I was a bit confused here. Does Gene know what Paul did? I don't think so, right? Yeah. I think I she know. thinks then, that they were just going on a, a cruise to Italy and back. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Because they do re- reveal the names of those guys. And you think she'd be like watching the news and be like, oh, that's weird. Weren't you just in Italy with, with those two guys who ended up kidnapping the Pope? Did you know anything <laughs> about that? There's also a scene, the highlight of the film as like an actual scene, like not necessarily for it being funny, is this murder montage where he kills, I assume these are the gangsters that originally hired him to kill, but it's like we haven't seen these guys in forever, so I didn't really know who these people were. Oh, well, first of all, this was another big laugh for me. He gets off the boat, he sees Gene, and they like embrace, it's all happy, and there's like, sappy music playing and then gene's just like oh by the way they killed giorgio yeah <laughs> giorgio the uh the tom savini guy so they visit yeah. his grave yeah. yeah so i think this is what inspires the this is why he goes on his murderous rampage with the most badass 70s hard rock song ever <laughs> Where, of course, he has to light a cigarette because that's how you look cool in mob movies. He sits behind someone at a racetrack and he shoots someone. Or he has, like, a lighter and a gun. Or maybe the lighter is a gun or the gun looks like a lighter, but he uses, like, a lighter. And then he also shoots the guy in the back of the head and just leaves. It's also, I'm shocked they didn't cancel that race because there's, like, puddles all over the track. And it seems very dangerous for the horses to be running there. But. <laughs> yeah. He also kills a dude. He sneaks into someone's house or someone who is sleeping with a woman. He shoots the guy through the eye. And then 
Oh, yeah. Let's himself into the car. You'd think he would have waited for the guy to unlock the door because I don't think he did. But And then he shoots the guy again when he's on the ground. And there was like a uh, a blood spurting sound effect. No, Nothing visual, but a very like violent blood spurting sound effect that made me think that that was a uh, 2009 to 2010 edition. Yeah, that yeah, didn't yeah. feel like a 1976 sound effect, but I could be wrong. And then the, so the naked woman hides around a little bit, and then he eventually finds her and maybe kills her. It's not really clear. Yeah, I mean, that's I think that's the impression we're supposed to get. Then the murder montage ends, and we pick up on his date, but then he also still kills someone in the middle of this. So, so it's, the murder isn't over, but the montage is, because he kills <laughs> a guy at, like, a nightclub where they're playing music, and he smashes head with a phone, uh, and then he just goes back to, his, uh, to Gene. Who, by the way, thinks he's a wonderful, fantastic guy. They go back to the home where they're with their pet bear. It's a Christmas Eve night. He reveals to Gene that I have to, I made a promise to this guy that I'm going to go light a candle for him. And guess what? I'm actually going to do it. So he leaves. He goes into the church. I think I love this. <laughs> this scene, it, it, he, so he goes into the church. It's dark. He, he brings his own candle. He lights it. And then there's, like, one shot where all the candles, like, go out. And there's a shot up to the statue of Jesus. And you just see the Pope's face appear, like, to the side. <laughs> Almost like the exorcist when they do yes, yeah. the, the reissue of the exorcist. It kind of felt like that. And then he, like, at first doesn't seem to be super bothered by it. But then is it Jesus or Mary's eyes that start glowing? I don't remember. The, the statue of Jesus, like a giant light cross appears, like flashes. Yes, there's that. And I think it's Mary's eyes. Yeah, and then it's Mary's eyes. Glow. They, they glow. Yeah, and then he starts running throughout the church, and there's, like, more stuff going on with, like, the lights the and light, the candles. Yeah, yeah. And then the movie freezes on him possibly being killed by the Holy Spirit or something. Yeah, it, it doesn't look like, like a happy ending, like <laughs> no i also i like when it freezes on him and zooms in because it's just a grainy image of his face <laughs> like you yeah. can't actually distinguish anything sure but jim that is gone with the pope what are your thoughts <laughs> it's totally bizarre man i think there's a reason uh it was in the garbage you know like i'm not gonna say it's a bad movie i think it was, it was in the gar- I, th- I think the 70s wasn't ready for this film i think that's what it is i maybe maybe he that's what he thought maybe duke mitchell was like this movie is by, by far ahead of its time with all the racism and fat humor but yeah i don't know it, it's just it's just a bizarre movie that's like a product of of a wannabe movie star i guess in the 70s you know, somebody who I think thought he was a lot more famous than he really was. The Sinatra friendship got to him a little bit. I think so, yeah. Like like, like all that bullshit. He's, that he's probably like, hey, be- Frank, I got a great role for you. You play this Giorgio guy. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I, there's really no words to describe it. I, it needs to be seen. And again, like it is so 70s that I thought it was a 70s spoof movie like there's a scene near the beginning see i didn't get that i didn't get it, but maybe it was because i knew the if you didn't know much about it going in i knew this was a movie that was made in the 70s i never felt like this was recreation this felt wholly authentic i guess is what i'm saying Well, but like that's amazing like near the beginning i forget who paul's talking to but he's talking to somebody and they're outside like sitting at a table and there's like a bunch of like yellow dishes in front of them and then behind them is this gaudy red and white checkered like tablecloth with like trays of food on them. But it looks so 70s that I thought there's no way that this isn't a spoof movie. And I was wrong. 
Well, I'll tell you what, also, also going back to this could have easily been a comedy and it just isn't, there's no real jokes in it. Like there's, if you were, if you're doing a, a spoof of 70s Italian American gangster pictures, well, <laughs> all your, your jokes can't all just be the fashion and the interior decoration of the 70s. No, but you know, but, but Patrick, it, it got to, a, it got to a point where like, the, you know how like lots of scenes in the movie, the camera would pan and then like stop midway and then continue to pan after like a slight adjustment. I thought that was part of the joke. I was like, okay, oh, just, I was like, they're going for to make like a shitty '70s movie, and this—they're nailing it. This is hilarious. This is amazing. The only—the only parts that are supposed to be funny is the racial humor, the fat lady, and then like stuff when they're on the boat there's together. Lines here and there. There's nothing like. Yeah, like why me? So, yeah. Why not? Yeah, you know, it's just a bizarre movie. I don't think I have anything else to say about it other than that. So you take it away. So I told you, I knew, I knew vaguely, I knew what the plot was. So watching this movie, this I went on a journey in this movie. I, like halfway through the movie, I I wasn't sure I liked it. I I I thought you know it was interesting. The Duke Mitchell obviously is just a weird guy who thought he could be a filmmaker, and you know, yeah. the filmmaking isn't like terrible. No, it's not it's like not, inept. It's not, it's not Tommy Wiseau. It's not no, Neil but Green. but but it's but it's very amateur, I guess. It is, but there's still some style. Like you mentioned, some of the shots of Rome, like some of the movie looks actually nice. Oh yeah, absolutely. Where I started really coming around was when they when they had kidnapped the Pope and they're on the yacht heading back, and it becomes like this happy-go-lucky, charming story of the Pope working miracles through the finding the chain in the fish. And I, I, at that point, I was just like, "This movie is so weird. Like this movie could go in so many different directions. This movie mm-hmm. could go in the direction where the Pope." literally performs miracles and it's like it wouldn't shock me at this point this could go in a direction (laughs) where like paul completely changes as a person or something and he does this and then even even at that point though like while i was while i was on board i still didn't overall like know what i felt about the movie for the most part i'm like at this point i i was pretty certain i enjoyed it but like then we we get we get back paul back to california and he does the killings and it's like with that music playing like this is actually cool like i like this not just as like a this is a terrible movie and it's weird i like like this scene i like the style of this scene this feels like low budget scorsese <laughs> low budget godfather stuff like this is awesome and then <laughs> when he went to the church i was fully prepared for the pope to show up and shoot him that's what I thought yeah, would, would happen. Awesome. That's what I thought would happen. We ended up getting something maybe even dumber, but I don't think quite as satisfying because we get God striking him down. Is that what that is? is I guess it, it is. I, 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 so I, it has to be. Well, well, there's two ways to interpret it. One, or, or are they just scaring him? Because that's lame if that's they're just scaring him. I assume he just he just dies. Yeah, I, I assume he got away. I don't know. But yeah, I I wanted the Pope to show up and shoot him in the face. That would have been so awesome. With like a shotgun. Like, all, all this you know? all this mafia crime has rubbed off even on the Pope. And the the, the moral of <laughs> of the movie is anyone who comes in contact with this is corrupted. And it would have been so stupid. It would have been awesome. <laughs> Instead, the moral is eh? vague. Eh, just like yeah. just like lots of things in the movie. Vague. But. I gotta say, I really enjoyed it, the movie as a whole. Definitely more interesting than entertaining. A few laugh-out-loud moments, relatively few and far between, though. Mostly just, like, I enjoyed it for how weird it is. Like, why... Why are we kidnapping the Pope? 
why why does the movie switch genres basically and also that the real the conflict of of tone of genre in the second half of the film from going between gritty gangster drama to sappy religious drama like i was on the edge of my seat to see how that would conclude and it concluded in an incredibly <laughs> dumb way a dumb way that i appreciated but uh-huh. that experience of seeing him show up to the church and not knowing where the story was going to go and it could go in so many incredibly stupid ways and it ended up going in a very stupid one and i was just like so satisfied i just i think this is a gem I under, but I will say, like I, I really enjoyed this movie. I don't think it's for everybody. I don't think you know. Even if you like B movies, if you like bad movies, this is there's aspects of it and, you're gonna like. That's for sure. For sure. But this is also like weird and, and interesting in ways that maybe other bad movies aren't. Like this doesn't have the inept filmmaking or acting that you'll see in like an Amir Shervan movie, like Samurai Cop or mm-hmm. Killing American Style, mm-hmm. or you know, it's not it's not that kind of thing. It's not the room. It's more just like his director had this vision. It's it's an incredibly weird vision that I can only imagine coming up, coming from this guy. But also like he's not the person to realize it. He doesn't handle it in the best. But it's it's such a weird, interesting vision that I liked it. I will honestly say I liked this movie too because it's just such a bizarre thing. And I think genuinely more people need to watch it. But it is this interesting. I don't want to call it a time capsule, but it's almost like an actual personal glimpse into 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 a a, a B or C list celebrity's life. That was what I enjoyed about it more than any more than anything because knowing what I know about Duke Mitchell, it's such a weird career to be a quote unquote star, mm-hmm. and to decide to do a to make film. And to make a film as a director, which he also acts in. And by the way, he's not a bad actor. He's no, fine. No, no, he's just got bushy sideburns and and he's racist. <laughs> it's, well, yeah. Um, and then, but like, I I guess I really appreciate just how the films that he decided to direct have nothing in common with, I guess, the rest of his career. And I think that's just really, really fascinating. Is that he was a lounge singer? You'd think if he's making a movie as a director it would just be like a light comedy or you know a story about a musician trying to make it big no it's about kidnapping the pope like oh okay and 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 that's what i don't understand too because like first off the wikipedia page for this is essentially nothing but there's a line on it that says that and again i don't know how true this is that duke mitchell was inspired by the godfather and he wanted to make something godfather-esque but i don't I don't know how true that is. I can see him being well, I, inspired I, by like by like a gangster type movie. Yeah, I I, th- I think the inspiration is Italian American gangster pictures are in. I I think that's where the inspiration begins and ends. I I don't see there being a, yeah. a story influence or any kind of style. Maybe a little tiny bit in the style that he's trying to do, but but isn't it so weird that the themes of the movie? I guess you get kind of like gritty Italian American gangster movie, and you get weird kind of like rom-com type comedy with like a bunch of men on a boat you know like like there's bits where like they're looking at playboys and they're like kissing the new model and handing it back and forth and the old man sees it and he's like he's hitting i think it's paul over the head with like the magazine and it's like these cute little jokey jokes you know I, also and i i think this is just the italian but borderline homoerotic at times 
All the kissing on the mouth, like when he's yeah. leaving prison. I think that's just how the Italians are, or the Italians of a certain generation are. But some of these scenes, it's it's almost like, again, because I knew he was going to kidnap the Pope. It's like, is this all going to be because he's like closeted gay or something? Like, oh, this would be interesting. <laughs> and then, no, they don't do any. It, it's not what that is. Uh, that's not the story. Um, I don't think I don't think they mention homosexuality. I know he complains about like you, you, the church could be doing more about all these starving people, and instead you focus on divorce and abortion. Like mm-hmm. I don't think he, he mentions homosexuality there. He could have. He could have listed that as like another thing that hey, grand scheme of things, not all that important. But Jim, I want to share with you a few IMDb trivia facts. One of these I just read for the first time. Originally titled Kiss the Ring, it was renamed Gone with the Pope by Grindhouse Releasing. So that explains okay. a few things. So the, so the title is kind of a joke, I guess. But Kiss the Ring? Well, yeah, because the Pope, that's what you're supposed to do when you meet a Pope. Is yeah, you kiss yeah, yeah, yeah. But like... So also this this is as, as far as trivia that I find hard to believe. But you know what? I, I, I'm going to say find it a little easy to believe because I think there's a certain level of delusion with Duke Mitchell when he's making this movie. The filmmakers requested a meeting with the Pope to discuss the validity of his kidnapping scenes in person. The Pope's people refused. (laughs) This aspect of requesting a meeting with the Pope was used in the film. Are they that delusional or dumb to think that they could actually meet with the Pope to discuss... It's tough because I think you have to be delusional to make a movie. If one person is, it's Duke Mitchell. Yes. Well, to make this kind of movie. Well, to make a movie where you start, where you write, direct, and... Cast yourself as star. Yes. Well, no, you don't. I mean, Woody Allen's not delusional. He's just a pervert. I mean, it's more... (laughs) I I think the delusion comes from his vision of the movie is just so weird. It's not him as, like, a director, producer, actor. Like, he's just... I don't know. And then also another IMDb fact, Jeffrey Mitchell, Duke Mitchell's son, has joked that despite the Christian themes in his father's movies... The only time he was religious was while on small planes having engine problems. So, <laughs> which I, I just I just like that quote or whatever. That's a great piece of trivia. I like that. Yeah. So, any final thoughts on Gone with the Pope? Is it better than Gone with the Wind? Oh, definitely better than Gone with the Wind. I enjoy it more. Less racist, which is you know. And but I don't debatable. know. I think it's also better than like Angels and Demons. I'll give you that. Though Michelangelo had more to do with this movie than Angels and Demons. Yeah, that's right. He's credited. He's not credited in in (laughs) Angels and Demons to my knowledge. But yeah, no, it's a a totally strange movie. Really, at the end of the day, it's just an interesting look into, I don't want to call him delusional, but I think he is, into a delusional B-list celebrity's life. Yeah. And that's where I, going back to what I said at the beginning, I think... What's that? You know, I'm going to butcher the line because I haven't seen The Dark Knight Rises in like eight years. But there's that line <laughs> with Bane where he's like, you merely adopted the darkness. I was born in it. Molded by the by time it, I saw the light, I was yeah. nearly a young man. But this this to me is this is Duke Mitchell making a, a sleazy B-movie, looking at all these other filmmakers, these Tommy Wiseaus, these Ed Woods, these old guys like, listen, you only adopted sleaze. I was born in it. I was in a Martin and Lewis <laughs> rip-off comedy troupe before I was making films, and I'm going to take levels of that sleaze into my filmmaking. I, I will say I am disappointed no Sammy Petrillo cameo would have liked him to show up. Mm-hmm. It took me a long time to realize it, but I kind of love this movie. I think I do, too. Maybe not love, but I think I like it a lot. 
Yeah, definitely not for everyone. Definitely not for everyone. Uh, a unique bad movie, a unique B movie experience. I haven't seen anything else quite like this. I don't think. No, I think that's I think that's fair to say. So, Jim, which of these two films do you prefer? Battles Without Honor and Humanity or Gone with the Pope? I gotta go with Battles Without Honor and Humanity. I just enjoyed it more. It was more up my alley. Though Gone with the Pope, close second, being the second movie. So Yeah, that's the only two the only two choices. So <laughs> yeah. close nah. second. Almost third though. Um <laughs> yeah. no, I will take I'm going Gone with the Pope. I figured, yeah. <laughs> At the end of the day, I just think I'll think about this movie more. Not that it's like a thoughtful <laughs> film, but but it's, th- it's will, thought provoking in a sense because yes, you're trying to I find rem- answers. You know, I will remember this film, and I I will recommend this film to a lot of people. If if someone's talking to me about like, hey, you know, I saw some really weird movies. Like I, I don't know, like there's certain movies they're not necessarily the most fun or the worst movies, but it's just like. I'm just always going to recommend that movie as like a B movie. So, Jim, how do you think this stacks up as a drive-in double feature? You know what? If I'm going to be honest, I think it actually works pretty well. Because Battles Without Honor and Humanity, fantastic movie, I think. I mean, again, I, I actually Genuinely picked, good, yes. Yeah, I accidentally picked a genuinely good movie that is acclaimed and I, that I'd never heard of. But the gangster aspects carry over into Gone with the Pope. And that's yeah. really that. Uh, that's really what kind of drives the first half of Gone with the Pope. The whole movie, because he does the the assassination. Oh, you're montage right. Yes, yeah, yeah. On, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I'm almost tempted to say it doesn't work because Gone with the Pope is just so different <laughs> than any other movie ever ever made. But uh, I think it does, just barely. Well, it, I, it out. I think it's a great double feature. I mean, the big thing here is two completely different depictions of the mafia of 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 the gangster film you know you get uh, the japanese culture and the yakuza the italian-american mafia and then it also like you get all this through the glimpse uh, of through through the director's eye of one of the most acclaimed directors in japanese cinema and then you get one through a complete crazy person it's <laughs> fun i think it's a great double feature i mean it's just like they're both like, yeah, there's one that's quality and then there's one that's not. and But it's just like, I don't know, it's the 70s. It's but like, it is amazing that we can draw comparisons between the two, even though they are so it is. different. I don't know. I just thought there's a lot of fun little connections in the in the gangster genre. And we, I don't think we're going to do a lot of gangster pictures on this podcast. So it's kind of amazing that we did two of them here. I, now, now, did you pick Gone with the Pope because I picked Battles Without Honor and Humanity? Or, or, or was that just a total coincidence, too? Total coincidence. I, I was debating between Gone with the Pope, Turner and Hooch, The Wicker Man, a few others. But I, I curiosity got the better of me. I just like wanted to find out exactly what Gone with the Pope was. I wanted I, I wanted to find where the Pope went. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I want to find where the old man went. He just disappears. <laughs> you mean Pope version two? <laughs> yeah, that, that's awesome that we that we that we did that by accident. That's pretty cool. All right. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Next time we will be back, we will be doing a Season 3 Awards recap. So if you were with us in Season 2, we did something very similar. A few different categories here. So it should be a lot of fun. Jim, we have to get our nominations ready. And then 
yeah, be sure to, so we're going to be taking a break after that because that's our last episode of Season 3, but keep paying attention to us on YouTube, Twitter, and Patreon because we will continue to be posting stuff and, and Patreon will continue to do monthly commentary tracks for you lovely patrons out there. So, Like we just uh, did Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Check it out. It's just Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's literally the first thing oh, you're we right. about That's in the right. commentary I track forgot. is how I, <laughs> I how much I hate that that movie's been retitled <laughs> the way like Star Wars movies have been well, retitled. Well, clearly I was not paying attention to the commentary track. Anyways, thank you for joining us, folks. We hope you'll catch us next time.